It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a good one in store today. It's Wednesday, which, of course, means armchair politics is coming up in about an hour or so for two hours of commentary and analysis about local, state, and national headlines from the worlds of uh, politics and current events. Featuring our uh, roundtable regulars, uh, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left, and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right. They're going to be joined uh, this morning. Um, I was going to say this was his inaugural visit to the show, but that's not really true. He did visit us in the studio uh, once uh, prior to um, prior to the pandemic, before I moved the studio home, and. Um, I think he was introduced to us and me by uh, former Flint Mayor Dane Walling. Anyway, he is. Uh, let me get this. Uh, let me get this right. Um, he is. Uh, he considers himself a uh, Democratic strategist and lifelong resident of Genesee County. He's a graduate of uh, MSU. Has worked on multiple campaigns up and down the ballot. And he currently serves as a communications advisor for the Michigan House Democrats. His name is Jasper Martis, a.k.a. Jazz. And uh, Jazz is going to riff with us uh, a little bit today on uh, armchair politics. So be sure and stay tuned for that. Um, I've been starting this show out with a, uh, a different dumb comment courtesy of a... Uh, calendar that made its way into my stocking uh, this year for Christmas from my sister and uh, I, I decided it might be nice to share one of these each day so that when I say something dumb it doesn't seem like I'm the only person who says dumb things but this one comes from an article uh, in the daily uh, in the Dayton Daily News in Ohio obviously about a school principal and the uh, the comment was, he said, anyone who suggests he's someone who speaks without speaking first is mistaken. So, I'm not the only one who twists and turns my words. Now, what we're going to do is uh, a quick little gear shift here. I was uh, expecting to talk with... Um, the author of a new book called Born in Blackness, uh, the uh, author Howard French from Columbia University, and uh, I have not heard from him yet, so instead, I'm going to shift gears and talk with Michael K. 
Cotman, who I spoke to earlier this week and hadn't had a chance to uh, air that interview yet. In fact, I was going to air it next Monday, but uh, but we'll go ahead and slide that in now because it's, uh, well, the topics are a little bit related. So um, stand by and stay tuned. We have uh, Michael Cotman coming up next. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is teamed up with National Geographic Kids for a uh, book on um, the first African-American commercial airline pilot. Uh, The book is called segregated skies how the first african-american commercial pilot earned his wings and it's written by pulitzer prize winning journalist and former white house political correspondent michael cotman who joins me by phone hi michael welcome to the show hi tom thank you for having me i greatly appreciate it it's good to be here um michael how did david harris's story um end up on your radar well, quite by accident, Tom, uh, to be frank. I, um, a couple of years ago, I went to visit um, some family members in Atlanta. And while I was there, I um, called an old friend, a dear friend who I hadn't seen in a while to catch up. Her name is Lynn May. She's in the book. Um, she's a former PBS anchor, but also she is David Harris's ex-wife. And so while we were sitting in her living room and just catching up, she asked me if I knew about David Harris, if I heard of him. And I told her no. And she says, well, he's achieved a lot in his lifetime. Um, He's a very interesting man. We we still remain friends. And uh, he's the first black uh, pilot to be hired by a commercial airline. Well, Tom, she got my attention. And uh, she says, why don't you give David a call? Uh, Might be a good magazine story. And she said, if nothing else, it's just two good people connecting with each other. I said, fine. I, you know what? It makes sense to me. I called David the next day. Tom, I thought we'd talk for 10, 15 minutes. We talked for more than two hours. <laughs> um, he told, it's, it's fun he when told, that happens, Michael, when you, it, know, it, when you make it, that it, kind of connection. It, it, it is. It is. I felt, I, I felt as though I've, I've known David for years. Uh, we, we just, we hit it off. His story was inspirational. It was motivational. It was uplifting. Um, the, the kind of stories that I like to tell time and, and over my journalism career, that's what I like to do. That's what I have done to tell uplifting stories, positive stories, um, and, and historical stories. And, um, David had all of that, right? All this history and, um, the, 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 the racial obstacles in his life that he had to experience and endured. And so um, uh, after we finished our discussion, I called Lynn, first call I made to thank her. And then I called my agent, and then I called my uh, editor at National Geographic and shared um, the story of David, a part of which I just shared, shared with you. And National Geographic immediately embraced my idea with um, what I call thoughtful enthusiasm. I mean, just they were really, really excited about this. And uh, the rest, uh, pardon the pun, is history. Well, Michael... Speaking of history, when exactly did David Harris become the first African-American commercial mm-hmm. pilot? 1964, uh, in the height of the Civil Rights Movement. 
um, racial unrest is unfolding across the country several years later. Um, then President Lyndon Johnson was uh, signing the uh, Civil Rights Act. Um, it, it was a tense time in America um, with regards to, to race relations. Um, and David didn't have any role models, right? Um, he didn't have anybody to turn to to ask how to navigate um, the interview process, trying to you know, navigate you know, walking into um, airline uh, offices and airlines to be interviewed. He had been rejected by a number of airlines before he got to American. And um, he had Lynn, his wife, best friend and confident, to help him help him through this. But I just want to mention that David didn't set out to to to, to become uh, to set history to make history. You know, he set out just to get a job, get a career, uh, raise a family, provide, put food on the table. Those were his goals. Well, how was he qualified to be a pilot to begin with? Did he fly in the service? He was in the military and was trained on B-52 bombers, among other airplanes. So he had a great deal of experience and a lot of flight time um, from, the, from the military. And um, as we know, many pilots, as you know, um, aviation today, started off in the military, in the Air Force. Uh, so David had, uh, had been, um, he was a highly trained, highly trained pilot. And so he knew that he could fly. All he wanted was a chance and an opportunity. So by the time he got to American Airlines, again, he had been rejected by others. I believe um, American was the last stop for him, I think, of, of major airlines, or at least one of them, but I think it was the last stop. And um, he met with the recruiter, and um, he did something that I thought was, was phenomenal, and I thought something that was courageous. David is light-skinned. He has green eyes. There are a lot of people who don't know necessarily if you looked at David that, to know that he's black, some people. So David wanted the recruiter at American Airlines to know that he was black, and he told him. He might have used the word Negro back then, but, it's, you know, but basically he said, I just want you to know. And uh, much to his surprise, the recruiter, again, who's white, David said, looked at him and said, and he, he sort of laughed and chuckled a little bit and just said, look, I don't care if you're black, white, or chartreuse. Can you fly an airplane? And uh, David chuckled and said, I, I can't. I can fly an airplane. Wow, kudos and, uh, to the American recruiter. Airlines, huh? you, you know, exactly. You're exactly right. I mean, let's give American Airlines some credit here. Um, they they took, a, took a chance in their mind, estimation, and turned out um, – and, and turned out wonderfully because David went on to serve to have a very impressive, uh, successful, distinguished career at American Airlines uh, as a captain for 30 years. You know, it's interesting, Michael, that that you said David didn't set out to break any racial barriers. And, I, I you know, I got the same thing talking to... Um, I, I had the great privilege of interviewing a couple of the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they said the same thing. It wasn't about being the first yeah. black pilots or, you know, any any of that. They just wanted to fly airplanes. Right, right. David, um, you know what? I'm really glad you brought this up. Uh, because David talks a lot about the Tuskegee Airmen, and he talks about how he didn't necessarily have any role models that he could pick up the phone and call, but his role models were the Tuskegee Airmen. And he, he says this because he says, I stand on their shoulders 
Um, um, and if not for the Tuskegee Airmen, he would not have been at, at the uh, the point in his career that that um, sort of landed him pardon, landed him the job at American Airlines. Um, he often says that members of the Tuskegee Airmen should have been the first, but because of racial discrimination, they were never afforded the opportunity to even be interviewed, let alone hired. So David says that he was the right person in the right place with the right stuff. And he, he praises and thanks the Tuskegee Airmen every time. And, and that's part of that, that's part of David being humble. And um, and that's so much also what I appreciate about him. But that's also about all the different doors that have to be opened. There had to be people that that flew in the military for him to be able to get the training he got before he even found the right recruiter at American Airlines. The odds were really against him, weren't they? Absolutely. And, um, and he talked about that. And um, it, it was, you know, he, he went through a lot of, of um, inner turmoil because, you know, he talks about it's difficult enough and a pressure, pressure-filled um, uh, journey enough when you're trying to just get earn your wings to become a pilot, right? A lot of studying which is a part of, part of the book, a core issue, I hope, for young readers to take away. Studying, working hard, tenacity, perseverance. But his point was, that was tough enough. But then to have to deal with some of the, you know, the, the, the racial discrimination that went along with it, some overt, some covert. Um, some of what he dealt with sometimes during the testing period where he had to step away from, from Lynn and with the, uh, with the other cadets, and uh, also the trainees uh, at American, uh, was um, loneliness and separation. Uh, it, it wasn't as if people were calling him names every day or anything like that all the time. It was that he felt ostracized, you know, not, not one of the gang, you know, not one of the fellows. But I would think um, he would have run into co-workers and maybe even passengers that would refuse to fly with what they would have identified at the time as a colored pilot. And that and that that may be true. I, I don't think he knows if, if people actually left flights or not. I think you, you, you're right. Um, he, he does tell a story about the first you know first time that um, he and his coworkers assembled an all black flight crew, uh, all black flight crew for American Airlines, and that was in 1984. That wasn't that long ago. And he talked about how heads were spinning when the three of them uh, walked down the hallway at. Um, uh, through the airport in Dallas and then headed to the jetway, walked down the jetway and then walked into the cockpit. And now I, I don't, I don't know this to be true. Maybe there may have been some people who even turned away then and didn't fly. I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that he said that there were a lot of stunned, absolutely stunned people. Um, and he said heads were spinning. And, um, uh, so, um, so yes, he, 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 ha he has endured a lot, but, uh, but through it all, um, one element of this book that I, I talk about in, in a, a takeaway is um, overcoming adversity. More about the first African-American commercial pilot, David Harris, from the book Segregated Skies from National Geographic Kids and uh, award-winning journalist and author Michael Cotman. Straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Hi. I'm State Representative Sarah Anthony. Our community and communities across the country are seeing a rise in gun violence. Firearm injuries are one of the leading causes of death among children. Parents, it is your responsibility to know where your firearm is at all times. First, lock your gun away somewhere safe. Also, make sure that it is disassembled and unloaded. It's up to us to prevent gun violence in our community. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about the first African-American commercial pilot, David Harris, from the book Segregated Skies from National Geographic Kids and uh, award-winning journalist and author Michael Kottman, straight ahead. This is, is really interesting because so often when we talk about the first person to accomplish some milestone and and we write about it historically the way you have in this book you don't always get to talk to the person who went through it yeah that's that's a good point and Um, and i would think that that would have been really an interesting part of of being able to tell this story is being able to actually talk to the guy who went through it it's you know it's not like doing a a biography of uh you know alexander hamilton or um you know sojourner truth or you know mm-hmm. you you had a chance to actually talk to him how much of of telling his story to you how did that impact you and your experiences in your life well it was um some of the stories were a a little hard to hear and when i say hard to hear i mean I, I, i don't mean not wanting to tell the story but understanding the pain um in some ways that he endured um, while he was um, while he was flying, and what it did for me was it, it validated sort of what I do, and it reminded me how important it is to share stories that are uplifting, and to share new stories. And as as journalists, we very seldom get a chance to to write you know stories that are untold. And uh, this is this is really an, uh, just essentially an untold story. People don't know who David Harris is, but but they will now, and he and he deserves it. Um, when you ask me about when you ask me this question about how it, it, what I took away from it and learned changed. Um, I mean, I how much how of it I was relatable based on situation. your experiences? Um, you know, working for. Uh, different high-profile news outlets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, um, there's some comparisons. Uh, when when David was um, a pilot, he worked pretty hard uh, with management to try to bring in more black pilots, male, female. And um, he was, I think he would tell you, mildly successful. Um, but, he, but he tried, and he, he kept doing that. Um, I have been working for years as well, trying to make sure that um, to help newsrooms and, and various companies through the years uh, reflect America and to make sure that uh, people of color um, are represented in, in newsrooms across the country. So I've, I've, I've worked on that. So th- th- that hasn't changed. So, so we do have some similar goals, some similar characteristics um, uh, if you will. So we did, we did connect on that front for sure. And I, I guess I'm, um, <laughs> I, I, I guess maybe what I'm getting at, Michael, is how important 
was it that you were able to tell this story and not uh, Bob Woodward? Maybe because I've experienced uh, some of the um, race discrimination that David has faced as well, not not in the same way, uh, but I've written about it, uh, about racial profiling, being pulled over by police, um, looking for somebody else, not me, um, followed in grocery stores or supermarkets or um, yeah, department stores, um, being called the N-word. Um, so I've experienced my share of, of racism and discrimination in my life as well. Um, and as a black man, I still face it every day. I'm a journalist. I can write my story. I'm finished at the end of the day. I can finish my book, and that's done. But I'm still a black man in America. Um, there's still black men being shot and killed, unarmed, for no reason, senseless death. So um, um, as, as, a, as a black man in America who's experienced some of the discrimination uh, similar that David has, I think that it was um, a natural evolution um, for me to, to share his story because I, I understand it. Um, I, I get it. And um, and it's a story worth 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 sharing. Well, I th- I just I can't get over the, how fortuitous it was, Michael, that the two of you should meet and and that this would end up taking the path that it did into writing this story because it is an important story to be told, and it's important that it be told by someone who understands the story well. Yeah, I I don't think there are any coincidences. I don't, I don't think it was just a coincidence that I knew Lynn and, and David happened to be Lynn's, you know, ex-husband. I think we're I think we're guided to stories, and I really sincerely believe that. And I think I was guided to this to this story through Lynn to get to David, and um, and we uh, we talk often. He's he's a wonderful man. He's humble. Um, what, one quick story I think that that yeah, you appreciate the um, actually are two stories, but one I'll, I'll, I'll tell first is that um, David tells a story about um, a flight attendant on a trip with American Airlines uh, who comes over to him and just says, you know, there's a passenger back in the back, um, in back in coach, which they call the main cabin now, um, and she's terrified. You know, but she, it, it, there was something that was going on with her family where she had to fly. She didn't want to fly, but apparently, but apparently she had to get from point A to point B fast, and so she had to get on this plane didn't want to fly, was really, really nervous. Um, so the flight attendant tells David, David goes back to coach to talk to the, the, the woman and puts her at ease, talks to her about uh, redundant safety instruments, redundant instruments for safety uh, that, the air, that the airplane has and how this airplane is incredibly safe. And then he takes another step. He says, well, why don't you just come on with me and come on up to the cockpit? And so he takes her in the cockpit shows her these instruments, talks to her about how safe this airline is, tells a little bit about himself, walks her back. Um, apparently she was, you know, at ease, had a wonderful flight, the flight attendant said. And um, and uh, David said, well, yeah, I said bye to her when she got off the plane and she enjoyed the flight. But I, I thought to myself, what? who does that? Who takes the time? For one passenger, maybe you got 200 people on board, you know, you're ready to take off, you've got a lot on your mind. And that told me a lot about his personality, his persona, his character, his compassion. Um, 
I don't think I don't think pilots many pilots do that. No, I, I think you're right, and and the fact that, um, and, and I don't know when that happened in in the span of of his career, um, but it's it, it's often people like David that make the biggest leaps forward because. They do have a little special something. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. I, I, I do agree. He's um, he's special also because of what he what he does, and maybe also what he doesn't do. And 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 I want to use the word restraint. And and I think that's a that, that's a word um, um, a le- and a life lesson maybe for some of these students who pick up young people who read this book. In 1968, David was landing a plane at National Airport in Washington, D.C., and he looks uh, out of his window, left seat, he's the captain, and sees fires, and I believe that the flight, um, I believe the air traffic control tower may have told him that the fires were from uh, civil unrest and riots in Washington at the time. This was civil civil rights movement. And um, he was flying with a co-pilot who was white who he had never flown with before. David's... Um, um, role model and uh, iconic figure um, is Dr. Martin Luther King. He talks about Dr. Martin Luther King a lot to me. Um, this man, uh, co-pilot, said some very disparaging things about Martin Luther King um, and then implied that he was fine with him being assassinated. Now, just think about what was going through David's at the time. He's got 150, 200 people, whatever it was, on board. His first mission, right, is just to land the plane safely. Um, and, you know, for pilots, you, you know, I mean, obviously, it's a big deal. It's important. Some pressure sometimes. It's bad weather. That's the first thing. But now, he's got this in his head. You know, I'm flying next to, you know, a bigot. You know, what do I do with this? And these are questions that are going through his head after, after he lands safely, which he did. You know, do I grab the guy? Do I yell at him? What what, what do I do? He he did have a few choice words. I think he talked to management. He never flew with him again. But what I took away from that was, when I said restraint, is that eventually, and it didn't take too much time, he just let it go. Um, I had to deal with this. It it was adverse. I put it behind me. I've got a career here to focus on. I'm not going to judge everyone like this guy, which I thought was a wonderful thing for him to say. Right. You know, the next co-pilot that comes along, who was great. Right. And the one after that was great. Um, so um, he says, I'm not you know, I'm not going to paint everyone with a broad brush just because I had this bad experience. And that is a life lesson for, I think, young readers. Well, and for all of us, you know, I, I mean, those are horrible. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. You know, those are horrible thoughts to, to hear for anyone. Um, let alone someone who who has a personal um, relationship or or um, affinity for Dr. King. You know what? Absolutely. And through it all, I mean, I should tell you now that um, just so you know the evolution. You know, David has um, um, he's just got so many friends, diverse friends you know, all over this country uh, who love David, who look up to him as a role model, um, people of all ethnic racial backgrounds. Um, and um, it, it, David is, 
is so open-minded um, and he's so willing to, to meet and accept everybody. And, um, and so, and I, so I told someone the other day, this, this book is for everyone. This book is not just for a specific group of people. It's for everybody because in my mind, David is an American hero. Um, and that's, that's what I call him to me. And, and so I wanted to share this story with everyone because I think, I think everyone would be uplifted and just, and, and would feel good. Yeah. There are a couple of tough, um, um, stories and tales in this book. There's no question about it, but, but ultimately, um, it, it, it's a story about, um, rising above it and being successful and remaining positive. And David, he's just, he's a positive man. Did it ever occur to him to, to just not try to be a commercial airline pilot and just be a crop duster somewhere? I, I, I don't think so. He, he, he said he had long conversations about this with Lynn May, um, his ex-wife, and that was his confidant. That was his best friend. Um, they talked about the, um, uh, the racial discrimination that they would face. They knew what was coming. I mean, they, they, they went into this eyes open. Um, they, they knew it. Um, and Lynn's got stories herself, you know, about walking through a small town in Texas and having these uh, guys uh, try to harass her. And she brought a, a beautiful white dress for David that she wanted uh, to wear to, uh, while she was um, um, having dinner that night to celebrate one of his accomplishments, moving up the ladder uh, with getting his, uh, earning his wings. And they, um, uh, they called her names and then spit tobacco juice on all over her white dress, brand new dress. She went home took it off, changed clothes, went in the backyard, threw it in this trash can, got some lighter fluid and burned it. Never told David about the story until mm -hmm. years later. And when she told him about it, he asked her, why didn't you tell me about this? Because I, I, I wanted to do something. She says, that's why I didn't tell you. I didn't want you to do anything. You would have gone back and you would have confronted these people, the racists, and who knows what would have happened. You could have been hurt. You could have been killed. She said, you had a career. Right, you had to study for this pilot stuff. I wanted you to succeed, but so she kept it from her, from him for decades. And I suspect he probably kept some of the pain that he was feeling from her as well. You, you're right. That, that, that's true. Um, he would try to write her letters and, and talk about it. He had a roommate uh, when he was studying. I think it was in Dallas studying for the um, get his pilot's license with American, and this guy didn't like black people and he would get up in the middle of the night or not in the middle of the night, I'm sorry, in the middle of the day, if they were, they would have this radio on softly because he liked to listen to jazz and it helped him focus and just, um, um, study and, and a, a good musical environment, if you will. And, uh, this gentleman did not like it and, um, used the N word a number of times and would go over and turn off the radio and say, he doesn't want to listen to these black people on the radio. And so David told me that he would talk to Lynn about it because he was bothered. He had to study. He had to stay focused. But his roommate was a racist. And so he would talk to her about how to manage that. How do, how do I handle that? And, um, and you're right. I mean, he could have quit at any moment. And back then, look, you know, there would be people who would probably say, I don't blame you. You, went through, you were going through a lot. We don't blame you for quitting. Um, but he wouldn't. And Lynn kept him focused. And that's why she's a pivotal part of this book. And and I know it, but David has told me too. Without Lynn, there's no me. David would say so. Um, David succeeded uh, because of his own tenacity, tenacity and perse perseverance. But he had a strong, formidable little black woman at his side the entire way. 
Who were some of the people that inspired you, Michael? Martin Luther King, for sure. Um, Barack Obama. Nelson Mandela. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet both of them. I met Nelson Mandela and I met Barack Obama. Um, I would even say, um, I know it's not a household name, but um, Representative uh, Sheila Jackson Lee out of Texas is this, uh, and Maxine Waters, a formidable Maxine Waters is a household name, obviously. Um, formidable um, women um, who, like some of the other people I just named, and like David, um, are champions of uh, disenfranchised, uh, people who uh, speak for those who can't speak for themselves and to try to uplift them. Um, uh, Representative John Lewis, who passed away, uh, was um, one of my heroes. So, um, well, this is... Uh, there, there, mean, there, there are many. This is an incredible story, the story of uh, David Harris. It's uh, Segregated Skies is the name of the book, and uh, the author, Michael Cotman. And um, Michael... What's next for you? I think more stories, um, uh, more stories like this, more inspiring, uplifting stories. I don't know exactly what it will be yet, but it will be coming. <laughs> and uh, and I, I hope to still, you know, work on books and projects with uh, National Geographic. I'm so proud to have this this association. Um, to continue to tell these uplifting stories and um, and inspire uh, young readers and 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 adults um, across the country. Well, Michael, where where do you go to look for stories like this, or um, are you just uh, one of those people that these stories find, <laughs> like you know like I mean? this one did? <laughs> that's a great that's a great question. Um, stories do seem to find me. Um, I do love, um, I love reading. I love talking to people. And as you can tell, I, I, I love having conversations. I'm always a, a person who tells even uh, um, young people who I'm mentoring uh, that you never know where conversation will lead you. And so when people ask the questions and invite you at the lunch or for a phone call or, you know, talk to them, you never know where it will lead. So I, I think that um, I, I seriously believe I'm steered to different projects. As I mentioned, I, I, I believe that I was steered to this project and, I'll be steered to others like it. Well, again, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Michael Cotman. Um, the, the name of the book is uh, Segregated Skies, How the First African-American Commercial Pilot Earned His Wings. Um, Michael, this is a tremendous story, and I really appreciate uh you spending time to share this story with me and the listeners and, of course, in the book with National Geographic Kids. Um, let, me, let me just ask, as I always do, I, I ask all of my guests to share with listeners where they might find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. Do you have a website? I do, michaelhcotman.com. Well, Michael, thank you so much, and keep up the good work. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This has been wonderful. Take care. Again, Michael uh, Michael Cotman, and um, he's had a uh, pretty fascinating uh, story himself. Uh, he is uh, 
a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author. He um, is currently program editor for the NBC Universal News Group's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion team. He is a former political reporter for the Washington Post, the Miami Herald, and Newsday, among others. Um, anyway, uh, fascinating story about David Harris, written by Michael Kotman. We'll have more of the Tom Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello! I'm Maestro Ricky DeMagno. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Lone Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Flipflip Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology.
this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Um, I got thinking about inventions. Now, inventions today are handled entirely different than they were, say, a hundred years ago. They set up new product corporations, they have sales promotion firm, and they look at the invention in a business-like way. And this got me to thinking, supposing the Wright brothers had gone to a new product corporation to market their new invention called the aeroplane. I think if they had, a guy from the sales promotion firm would have talked to him on the phone, something like this. Hello, uh, who is this, Orville? Where's, where's Willard? Uh, Wilbur, I'm sorry. I, and he'll be on uh, late at the bicycle shop all week, huh? Uh, listen, uh, I talked to the guys here at the office and we're real excited about this thing. Uh, we really think you got something. Well, uh, we, we got a couple questions. Um, I, th I think you pretty much agree with this, uh, that the, the only way to make any loot on it is, is, to, is to start booking passengers as soon as possible. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, we may pick up a little on the baggage gimmick, you know, if we, if we set it low enough, but not enough to, to make it worthwhile. Well, I, I got a couple questions. Now, all the pictures we got show either you or Wilbur uh, lying on the wings. Now, when we start booking passengers, uh, oh, they will, huh? Well, uh, I mean, if we're going to cloud them for 75, 80 bucks to the coast, you know, I don't know how they'll go for lying on the wings like that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, 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 how, how many could you handle, do you suppose? Five on either side. That's top, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that's your end of it. I don't, I don't want to get into that. Uh, listen, is there any way of putting a John on it? Well, uh, Jerry came up with an idea, which, which I kind of like. Uh, maybe we could set up a little snob appeal thing and, and get, you know, uh, maybe two classes, one with a John, one without. You, know? you see what I mean? Yeah, it, well, uh, right away, we got two problems. Uh, obviously, how the hell did they get back to it is the first one. And secondly, you're going to be flying over cities, you know, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, some poor clown walking down the street, you know. Uh, well, let's put it this way, bad press, you, you see what I mean? Uh, well, you, you think, uh, listen, how are things coming on the plane? At Kitty Hawk last week, how'd it go? Uh, 105 feet, huh? That's all. Do the 12 guys still have to push it down the hill? They, they, they do, huh? Well, see, that's going to cut our time to the coast. I mean, if we got to land every 105 feet. You know? All right, well, listen, you work on it and, and get back to me. All right, I'll be talking to you, Orville. Goodbye. Any of you here from New York tonight? Any people here from New York? I was just in, I was in New York, I was doing the Tonight Show while Johnny Carson was here and then Johnny went back and I came here. It's supposed to be during the summertime. It's been proclaimed as a summer festival. New York is supposed to be a summer festival. And it is something less than a summer festival during uh, three weeks in July. There was a story, an item in the paper today, I don't know if you saw it, a, a lion got loose in the Central Park Zoo, got loose in the park and was severely mauled. And they, yes. <laughs> 
and they had, yes. <laughs> he knocked on the door and they let him back in. <laughs> and he said, don't go out there, baby. You know? Strange, strange city. Uh, and, but I took the train, because I don't like to fly. I take white knuckle flights when I fly, and you know, I take those kind. And I took the train, because I take trains a lot, but, uh, you know, it's mostly old people and myself who just sit in the lounge car. <laughs> and they tell me what a great President Harding was and all that. <laughs> and, uh, and I had a roommate. The railroads, they're trying to discourage passenger travel. I don't know if any of you have traveled on the railroads lately, but... Uh, if you've noticed, but they're, they're doing a hell of a job at it. They really, they don't want you there and they let you know it, you know. Um, <laughs> you're taking up space, you know. They, they could ship things, you know, instead. But um, I, took, I had to take a roommate. I couldn't get a bedroom. I had to take a roommate from Chicago to New York. And uh, the, the John is underneath the bed, you know, when you, you know, roommate. And the, the minute that thing locks, you've got to go. There's no question about it. It's psychological or something, but... The minute you hear that thing click, you know, you're out in the aisle, you know. You gotta go out in the aisle you know, and ring for the porter. <laughs> and there are like eight or ten of you out in the aisle, you know. <laughs> and you all know why the hell you're out there, you know, but you try to act nonchalant, you know. <laughs> you keep hopping from foot to foot, you know, so it sort of tips it off. And um, they are rapidly driving me back to, uh, the railroads are rapidly driving me back to air travel. I actually, I make money when I, when I go by train, I make money because the airlines will pay half of my fare when I, when I go by train because I, I whimper on a flight, you know, and like, <laughs> like when we go through an air pocket, I go, <laughs> and yell out things like, oh my God, this is it, you know. It bothers the other passengers, you know. <laughs> and this is before we take off. This is as we're, s <laughs> as, as we're still taxing, you know. <laughs> so you can imagine what I'm like once we get up in the air. And I'm the, I'm the kind of person, I get to the airport like five or six hours before the, the plane is supposed to take off, you know, and go immediately to the bar and start throwing them down. That's the only way I find I can make it, you know, just get three quarters bombed, you know. And, and I, I also, they can spot you on the plane, the hostesses can spot you. Like, you'll, you'll have like five or six drinks in the, in the airport, and then you'll have your two, your allotted two, and then you keep bugging the people around you. You're going to finish that? You know, you... <laughs> and they... That's her drink, Mr. Newhart. Just leave it alone now. You've had enough. But uh, I was, apparently there are a lot of people who feel the way I do about flying because I have never been in an empty airport bar. It is, it is always jammed. <laughs> I don't care what time you get there. Eight o'clock in the morning, you've you got to fight your way to the bar. Scotch and water? Yeah, okay. And everybody drinking uh, Bloody Marys, you know, because nobody can tell, you know, whether it's tomato juice or Bloody Marys until you fall backwards off your chair, you know. <laughs> But I was sitting in New York, and I'm sitting there, I'm throwing them down pretty good, and I still got like three hours to kill, you know, before the plane. And there's a guy sitting next to me, he's matching me, drink for drink, you know, so. Like, after an hour or so, you gotta say something, guys. So I turned to him, I said, uh, I don't like to fly, you know, I know, it's, I know it's safer than being in a car and all that, but, uh, you know, and you're safer in a, in a plane than you are in your own home, but I, I gotta have four or five belts, you know, before I can get on a plane. And this guy says, you don't, you don't have to apologize to me, pal, he said, I feel, feel the same way about it. Uh, this is my captain I'm talking to, by the way. <laughs> they, you know, they don't like to fly either, you know. And, and I'm going through a new thing now, which is sort of scary. Uh, the last six months, all of a sudden, it struck me. You know where you're giving the tickets and you're sitting around in the semicircle, you know, you're waiting to get on the plane. I try to spot the guy I figure has the bomb on that particular flight. You know? <laughs> 
I have, I have never been on a plane. There wasn't one guy. I wish you had a bomb. Right? So did he, you can always pick out one guy. He sort of dejected and sitting by himself and he got this plain shoebox on his lap. You know? He won't let the hostess take it, you know. And I found out one thing, that is always look in economy for the guy with the bomb. Never, never look in first class, you know, because obviously, you know, why should the, the guy go the extra $12, $14? You know, he isn't, <laughs> he isn't, he isn't going all the way anyway, you know. <laughs> Just, <laughs> and neither are you, as it turns out. Just something to think about on your next, your next flight. Uh, <laughs> this, this is a true story. I was flying one time to Los Angeles, and we're up around uh, 35,000 feet, and this elderly woman was on board, apparently her first flight, and uh, we were about an hour out of Minneapolis, and she went up to the hostess, and she said, where's the John? And the hostess pointed out to her, and she went in. And she came out a minute later and asked the hostess for a safety pin, so the hostess gave her a safety pin. And she went back in and came out. No one thought too much about it. And about two hours later, the plane lands in Los Angeles, and I'm one of the last ones to get off. You know, so, uh, and the hostess is supposed to check the plane, make sure no one left anything behind. You know. So as I'm walking by the John, she calls me over. She said, come here, you, you won't believe this. This dear old soul at 35,000 feet had pinned the curtains together in the John. This is true. <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> so help <laughs> No, you, you figure, you know, another plane going the other direction, you know. <laughs> 600 miles an hour, you know. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Program, don't you know? Go on. 
Come on, get out of here. <laughs>